Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. And we're proud to be a member, a community partner with Forward Radio, WFMP 1065, forwardradio.org. We're recording today's show, December the 2nd, 2020. The views and opinions expressed here on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the stations. On a sad note, condolences to the family and friends of Christine Perlin Gump. Chris was a solid force with our group, helping to plan and organize events make phone calls, stuff envelopes, pass out flyers, whatever was needed, Chris stepped up. On a personal note, I first met Chris as I was being arrested during a peaceful protest of a George W. Bush visit downtown. The police were out of control, imagine that. Chris came up to me and said something to the effect, I saw what happened Here's my number if you need a witness. Chris saw something. She did something. She was no stranger to good trouble. Mike, what's on the agenda? Uh, today's topic uh, will be uh, oversight uh, regul and regulation of research uh, in the U.S. Uh, let me begin by making the usual disclaimer uh, that uh, any comments that I make today I represent my personal views and do not represent the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. Any comments that I make are my personal view and not to, do not represent the University of Louisville, Department of Surgery, or Taylor Regional Hospital in Campbellsville, Kentucky. Well, and our guest uh, speaker today is Laura Clark. Uh, Laura is a professor in the Department of Anesthesia at the University of Louisville. Uh, she's a director of the Acute Pain and Regional Anesthesia. And uh, today uh, she's here as the chairperson of the uh, University of Louisville Biomedical uh, Institutional Review Board. Uh, Laura, we appreciate your willingness to spend some time with us and, and discuss these issues. Uh, uh, it's interesting. I can't remember whether it was six months or nine months ago that I made the first contact with you about doing this. Uh, but who, who knew that we would be doing this at a time when, when all of these issues of emergency use authorization and phase three studies would be boiling up with all of these uh, all of these vaccines, so the timing, timing couldn't be better. Uh, and what we've done in the past, Laura, was generally give um, our guests uh, an opportunity to make whatever initial statements they want uh, about the topic, and then we'll, the conversation will begin. So um, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, I too would need to make that same uh, disclosure uh, that uh, these views are my own. I don't represent the University of Louisville uh, in this program or my uh, anesthesia program as well. Uh, so uh, that being said, I'm really happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. Uh, research is a very important part of medicine and the delivery of healthcare. So I think it's really apropos to talk about this. And uh, now that some of the research words are uh, coming out into the mainstream of the news. Uh, I couldn't think of a better time to try to uh, simplify some things if I can. I'm very happy to help with this. I've been with the IRB at the university for almost, I don't know, 18, 20 years. I don't, it's hard to remember. Uh, but uh, I've also served on a uh, central IRB uh, until uh, just this past month. Uh, but the IRBs themselves began uh, in 1974 uh, when the National Research Act was signed into law uh, by the uh, National Commission with the uh, Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research. 
so that is a lot of words, but it's primarily to uh, offset uh, the problems uh, that we had had in our history of research. And uh, you know, it can go back uh, even further uh, as to the abhorrent examples of the Nazis when they used their prisoners for all kinds of uh, research that was just uh, unbelievable. Uh, but it also was unbelievable that even in this country and even in this century, uh, not that long ago, uh, we were letting uh, syphilis uh, people with syphilis uh, thinking they were being treated when part of them were being treated and some were not, and they didn't know that. And so they let syphilis go on. And so uh, all these things came to light and, and more, which I won't go into, uh, but that led to uh, that there needed to be some protection of human subjects in research. And so the primary function of the IRB is to safeguard human subjects uh, by looking at research and research ethics and best practices and reviewing research prot protocols primarily for the single goal of that anyone that is proposed to become a research subject or enter a study would know exactly to the best of the ability that we can uh, of what they're getting into and what they're agreeing to. Uh, over the years, that has kind of morphed into almost something uh, that is uh, problematic and that it is so long. In some of the cancer studies, they can be 30, 35 pages long uh, by putting side effects and that type of thing. But the, the primary goals are still that that people are being told, they are educated more about the, the study that they're going into, the drugs that they're taking, what are the side effects of those drugs, how long they're gonna be in there. So the IRB doesn't really function as a scientific review. Um, that is done on another level, uh, but what we're trying to do is look at the consent that they're presented to, uh, when they're looking at doing a study, that this consent is really telling them in language that they can understand or help to understand with the investigator uh, that they know what this study is about. So they're gonna also uh, review, uh, we're also gonna look at the protocol. We also review that these um, investigators are uh, using best practices and research ethics. And uh, we wish to try to balance the research risk uh, to the human subject with the benefits uh, to society as well as themselves. So with that being said, I'm open to any questions uh, that you might have. And uh, that's uh, about where I, I'll stop at this point for that for questions. All right, that's great. Let me make a quick comment about uh, uh, research in this country in general. We've done what, what Jane marked, what, 11, 12 programs <clears throat> on an assortment of, of, of health issues in this country. And, and most of it is not pretty. Uh, you know, we're the, the for profit health insurance companies, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the, the situation of rural health. But one 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 aspect of health in this country that that in at least in my opinion has has been done very well is the way we 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 regulate and and oversee how research is carried out. <clears throat> so and as you just uh, mentioned, uh, Laura, the uh, basically the IRB is an an ins is an oversight board. Is, is that that's a fair statement, huh? Yeah, I'd say that's a, a very good statement. Okay. Uh, uh, what is the uh, uh, the situation of this oversight board in, within the within the power structure of the university? Uh, if I was the chairman of or a chairman of a department, surgery or pediatrics didn't like 
the way the research protocols were coming through, uh, do they have a, any ability to come in and tell the, the, the IRB that they should be doing this more quickly or in a different way? Uh, so what's the reporting structure? Where does the IRB go in terms of the report to the vice president of health affairs or the, the uh, vice president of research or the president of the university? Who, who, who's, who's the next step up the ladder and how far up does it go? Well, we have a, a, a executive uh, vice president for research at the university uh, that we would go to. But uh, just like anything else, when the government is involved, uh, this has uh, blossomed and exponentially into all kinds of regulations. So there's regulations for the investigator. There's regulations uh, for a, a special FDA regulation drug, or if they're looking at a device, say a pacemaker or any kind of medical device, uh, there's, uh, so with all these regulations, as well as this function of really safeguarding human subjects, we want, we look at several aspects and a study is presented to us. And part of those regulations are uh, that human research uh, Subjects cannot enter a study unless it is approved by an institutional review board, an IRB, so that it has been looked at. And maybe I, I should say what is the IRB consists of at least five members of varying backgrounds. Uh, they have professional experience, some being appropriate scientific, uh, medical people, uh, other ethical people. And we also have uh, at least one member, uh, and often more than that, whose primary concerns are non-scientific. We call them the community members. So, uh, so that when we look at these uh, research studies, uh, that we have look at it from very uh, different perspectives and different aspects. Uh, you might be interested to know that it's supposed to be that the uh, consent form is in eighth grade language. Uh, and sometimes that's difficult to do with, with highly scientific studies. Uh, but we'll look at the oversight of the research itself, uh, not as a totally scientific review, because that's usually all already done, but look at it to make sure that uh, the investigator has looked at all the safeguards uh, for human subjects and that they're part of this study uh, and that they're following regulations. So we try to make sure that the investigator follows the regulations that concern human subject protection, such as keeping records, uh, that they are uh, compliant with, say, for the research in the uh, having enough people to do this research. Uh, it will also look at their past records. Uh, there's uh, regulations regarding side effects that have to be reported, uh, whether they be serious or non-serious, uh, whether they've done the protocol of the research study uh, the way it was presented. So auditing is a big part of the Human uh, Subjects Protection Board. Uh, as well as now with the, everybody's probably very uh, well identified with HIPAA and privacy concerns. Uh, and the, at the University of Louisville, our ethics, our IRB is also the privacy board. So we look at all those aspects and it reaches out to various different arms of a study. Uh, and I don't know, Mike, if you were really wanting to know um, what we do if we find that something is not being done, uh, the investigator is responsible for filing deviations in a protocol. And depending on the type of deviation, whether it's serious or continuing, and that uh, whether it's continuing means it happens over and over again or something like that, then we would be involved in educating that researcher, uh, that primary investigator, 
uh, or maybe his whole staff, and we'll go in and talk to him about uh, what could be done uh, to meet these regulations, uh, instruct them and educate them on on the different regulations that uh, they have missed and uh, try to improve it and make it better. Uh, sometimes we'll ask uh, that an investigator uh, has some more continuing education just on what's involved in doing research so that all these regulations are met. So we try to protect the subject, we try to protect the researcher, and we try to protect the university. All right, Laura, that's great. I think Jean's got a question she wants to follow up on. Uh, Dr. Clark, uh, have these increased regulations, have they been a good thing or do they impede uh, research? And how do you know uh, which regulations are good and which ones are bad? And how can you deal with Sometimes we get so many regulations, we can't uh, get anything accomplished. Oh, that's very true. Uh, it, it, and I guess, you know, if you ask the investigator, the investigator is probably going to say there's way too many regulations. If you ask somebody at the FDA and Health and Human Services, they're going to say, no, we need more regulations. So finding that happy ground, just like in any um, endeavor, uh, when there's to uh, uh, ways of looking at things and even more, uh, it, it can be difficult. But on the whole, I think the regulations are important. Uh, without them, I'm afraid we might digress to where we were before. And there are times that, that we have to make an investigator realize that they're being a little overzealous. Uh, sometimes, you know, they're so focused on their research that uh, that it's this and this and this uh that they haven't they've, they've kind of skipped over involving what needs to be told to the subject so that's where we come in and say no you have to explain this uh, oh say, say this, this part of the study that you want to do or this new uh sequence of events or, or a new device that you're going to have them or a questionnaire or that type of thing. So we'll have to remind them, nope, you haven't told the subject that. And there'll be multiple revisions to inform consent during uh, the study as the study itself evolves. So I, I've been on the IRB uh, for about 10 years. Um, when uh, Kelly McMasters, who's a chairman of the surgery department, uh, uh, suggested I might want to do this, I was thinking, what did I do to you know, piss him off? Because <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, Mark is getting nervous over there. We, we had some spicy language when we had Wayne Tuxen on here. <laughs> But uh, uh, Laura, I, you know, I think the IR uh, in the 10 years I've been on the, uh, has, has really done a good job sort of walking that fine line between, uh, you know, uh, accommodating all the regulations and, and trying to make the process as easy as possible for uh, the investigators. And, and, um, uh, and when you and uh, Julie, uh, Paula and Dick Groff, when, when he was what, one of the chairs, you all really have done a good job of trying to walking, walking that, walking that line. Uh, uh, most of the people listening, and probably most of the medical community, and even some of the faculty don't really understand a lot of the issues that go on in the IRB. Um, uh, with all of these vaccine studies coming along, there's been a lot of discussion about phase three trials. Would you uh, just take a few moments and go through the process of, of how a, a, whether it's a device or a drug, a, a, a monoclonal antibody goes through the phase one, phase two, and the phase three trial um, status from being something as an idea that might be beneficial in some way to reaching a point where it becomes uh, an accepted treatment by the FDA? Sure. Uh, 
I'll, it'll only be about three hours for me to do that. But uh, <laughs> maybe you could try to figure out a way to do this so that we can get a few other questions in before the hour is over. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think the important thing for people to know is that there it, it is a process and it is a uh, it's a logical uh, progressive thing. So, you know, it's it's you know, you first say, "Oh, I think I might want to study this." Uh and we'll talk about drugs uh since that's the most common thing right now. And you know, some people forget that uh, even before a study starts for a drug uh, there's a preclinical phase. Uh, some people call it the phase zero. Uh, and then you have the phase one and phase two and phase three. Um, but the, the preclinical phase, uh, it's before it, it can even start, it has to be tested uh, as an experiment on uh, animals uh, to prove that the drug is safe and effective in animals. And they'll use uh, anything from the, the term lab rat. Uh, they'll use mice. They'll use rabbits, especially for uh, toxicity studies for pregnancy. Uh, they'll, they'll use even up to uh, uh, beagles, dogs, uh, and uh, even monkeys uh, for all kinds of things, uh, even for uh, cosmetics uh, that uh, happens before this comes. And then... Uh, then they'll uh, apply to the FDA, and uh, they'll start a uh, phase one study, and that's where it's tested on a few individuals, primarily for safety, uh, but also at multiple doses. And one of the aims is to find the best dose with the fewest side effects. So this will be tested in a small group, maybe of uh, 15 to 30 people. Uh, and there are centers uh, that they'll do pharmacokinetic studies. You know, how long does this last in the blood? Um, they start giving a very low dose to the subject, uh, and then higher doses are given until some side effects uh, occur. Uh, and so they'll look and, and see what this is. Uh, and the drug may help patients, uh, but the phase one trials are to test the drug safety. And so if it's found to be safe enough, uh, then it can be tested in a phase two. And the phase two trial is not very large either. Uh, that's to further access safety as in all the aspects of a study uh, as it works. Uh, but it's uh, also to see if there's some efficacy there. Does it, does it really work? Uh, often new combinations or drugs are tested in a phase two and patients are closely watched to see how the drug works. And these may last for quite a bit of time. Um, and it's uh, rarely compared to the current standard of care in phase two studies. Uh, and that would occur in a phase three. So once it goes through phase two, uh, then it goes to phase three, where they compare this new drug to what's being used now. Uh, for this disease that they're hoping to treat. And they're going to look at side effects. And this is where the it gets much larger. Uh, it'll be hundreds or thousands of patients. And it can, it's, they're often in, uh, all, most of these are often multi-center. So they're not just done in one center. Uh, and sometimes it's done in Europe uh, as well as other countries. So it can be international uh, at this phase. Phase three, sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the phase three, they're often randomized. And uh, that's what's happened with these vaccine trials. Uh, they've fed through this, uh, but have, they have not compromised safety. Uh, one of the ways to do that is to test more individuals uh, because this costs a lot of money. And uh, this is probably one of the things that, should be discussed is that uh, pharmaceutical companies put millions and millions of dollars into research and development and very few or i would say you know there's it's so uh it's it's not 
it's not economical uh, for them to test this in large people all the time because not that many of the drugs that they are looking at actually come to fruition and, and become a marketed drug. And so that's kind of one of the questions that people ask, you know, why does this cost so much? Well, you have to think about what they've done and how many drugs have they gone through this process with that didn't work before they got to this one. And so there has to be some way that they recoup this cost. Of course, you can't gouge people and, and I won't, I don't want to get into a cost uh discussion right now in the middle of the, these trials that I'm trying to explain to you, but you have to consider that this costs a lot of money to do. And so they do have to recoup some of this research and development. And just when a drug works really well, uh, it just can't always be free. Um, that's a, that's a uh, big ethical hole. You could spend a whole nother hour on that topic. But at this phase three, when they compare this, then they they will also compare it to placebo, uh, which is a non-entity drug. It's a in the in the, the researcher in some of the most of these drug trials and the subject or patient. I'll refer to them as, as subject uh, because they're in a research study. Uh, they won't know whether they're taking the real drug or not. And so one of the things the IRB wants to know is do they have they done a good job of informing people that they might not be in this study and actually there has been research studies to show that people even though you tell them will think that they're going to get the active drug and even though you tell them that uh, we don't know if this is going to help your condition or not uh, they all believe by signing up for this study they're going to be helped which may not always be the case. We hope that it is, uh, and the researchers hope that it is. Uh, but one of the things we want to let people know that that may not happen, and they need to know that that's a possibility. And what odds do they have of getting the actual test drug? So that's so they're randomized to different groups, maybe different treatment arms, uh, and they're looked to see uh, how the outcome is. And is it better? And this may take years. So there can be uh, more than one or two treatment groups in these trials. Uh, and there'll be one that maybe is the control group that gets the standard of care. And there'll be another group uh, that gets the, uh, for laymanization purposes, the placebo pill. And you can't choose uh, which group you're going to be in. So that's the uh, phase three trial. And then the phase four trial is when it goes into post-marketing and they're still collecting data. And they'll go into this phase four trial uh, when it is approved, but they want to still collect data. So they're going to, and this is thing can be, you know, tens of thousands of a lot of people that go into these trials. So that's just a quick, very quick overview uh, of the phases. Any any questions on that? You did yeah. that great in less than three hours, Laura. <laughs> We're proud of you. <laughs> One of the questions I frequently get asked is, uh, is this um, new vaccine going to be safe? And uh, we've now uh, got an expedited uh, review of uh, the new vaccines. Uh, we speeded up the process is the, uh, from a patient standpoint, they say, are you going to take the vaccine? Because uh, we don't know if it's safe or not. What, what would be your answer to that? Well, I would say that what they've done with these studies uh, is because they have enlarged, the more and more people that take a drug, the more and more things you're going to find out about it. You know, when we first started uh, having any kind of drug, uh, we find out that by, you know, by the time it gets to 2 million people, we're finding out more things about the drug. But with these vaccines, because of the way the vaccines are, uh, and it's not a drug, it's a vaccine, uh, there's not as much variability of what needs to be studied. 
uh, for a vaccine. So a vaccine can be fast-tracked uh, a little bit faster than a regular type of drug. And because these were given money uh, from the United States, uh, that they were given, I don't know, upwards of $2 billion. Uh, so they had plenty of uh money to go ahead with wide uh, trials with more people than they would have done. So that's why they call it warp speed, uh, but it in no way compromises safety. We're actually collecting more safety data uh, than we would in the regular process that would take much longer. So there, there are things that can always happen uh, with any type, and, and I would never say and no informed consent would ever say that this is safe. There are risks with everything, but uh, I certainly have uh, no problems. Oh, I'm going to take this vaccine as soon as I can. And based on the uh, investigations that they've done, I feel that these, uh, in, these are very safe. Um, you mentioned the cost of drugs, and we as physicians also know how intense it is to place a drug on the market. But uh, patients are ending up with big bills, and the United States is responsible for about half the bill for pharmaceuticals around the world. And there's a lot of talk about uh, trying to control drug companies. Do you have any uh, ideas about how we can get a handle on the cost of drugs in America? Well, I will tell you that what uh, uh, Donald Trump, the President Donald Trump has done, uh, he's issued two rules uh, at aiming, uh, aimed at lowering prescription drug prices because the United States pays more for the same drug, as we know, than anywhere in the world. Uh, we're used to subsidize all these other places. Uh, and so lowering prescription drug prices no one has really uh, been able to accomplish that, but apparently uh, what he did is going to be in effect in January. And these will, uh, uh, it's aimed, I think it, it targets Medicare uh, but right now, uh, but what happens to Medicare trickles down to everybody else. Uh, and uh, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, Laura. <laughs> uh, so what, what has happened is, you know, people have gone to Mexico to get drugs for a period of time and come back, uh, and they've gone to Canada. So I think one of the things that he's done, uh, he has uh, limited, he, he's allowed governors to negotiate and buy drugs whereas before they could not, so they can buy from Canada. And what that does, it's, it's the regular old competition type thing. He's also said that with this, um, with this uh, most favored nation, the, the one of the rules that he did was most favored nation, and that would require Medicare to tie the prices it pays for drugs to those paid uh, by other countries. So it would limit um, what could be charged. And so that's going to be huge, uh, especially for drugs like insulin and just things that have been just skyrocketing. Uh, and it's supposed to start in the beginning of January. It affects Medicare Part B drug costs, uh, which is uh, probably the, you know, with uh, IV drugs injected drugs, uh, oncology, and those type of drugs. So well, I think the, the, the intent is to cap the cost of those drugs at the lowest price that the drug manufacturers uh, get from other countries. And so they're going to pay uh, providers, I think, on a flat add-on amount for each dose instead of a percentage of each drug's cost. So it's supposed to be that a lot of these drugs are going to be a whole lot cheaper and 
I think that's why the pharmaceutical companies don't like Trump, because uh, he's been able to tell them that that got to happen. Uh, it's probably one of the best things he's done uh, in his presidency. Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, when January rolls out, that that's going to be uh, huge and it's going to trickle down to other things by having competitions. I don't know how these governors are going to uh, purchase these drugs from these places, but I think it's going to be tremendous. Oh, it seemed to me be a whole lot simpler if they simply dismantled the law that prevents Medicare from negotiating with the pharmaceutical industry where every other of the 30 plus first world countries do that and get cheaper drug prices. Uh, the fact that Medicare <laughs> cannot negotiate with the pharmaceutical industry is absolutely insane. Uh, Laura, let's let's kind of slip shoot uh, to switch horses a little bit here and kind of get back to uh, the, the sort of functioning of the of the IRB. Uh, so uh, as an oversight uh, oversight board, let's say you, the, a, re, a research protocol comes through uh, and and either in the protocol itself or in the informed consent, uh, the risks of, let's say it's a, a new cancer drug, uh, which has been used and it's been around for a while, it's been treated for other cancers and it's now being applied to a, a different cancer. And that the, the risks of, of that drug, which has been around for a while, really aren't very well laid out in, in an informed consent, <clears throat> which is what tells the patients what's supposed to be going on. So what authority, uh, what, what can the IRB do to uh, make uh, wh who, whatever, whatever, whoever's doing the study change their uh, research uh, section so that it is more reflective of, of the reality of what the side effects of that drug uh, might be? And, and what authority, where does the authority come from that would allow them to to, to do something like that? Well, that came from that act that I told you about at the, at the beginning, at the opening. Um, that's, uh, that's, it's mandated by Congress and the Health and Human Services uh, that, that we have the oversight, uh, the final say of the informed consent. We try not to be a dictator and we try not to be a wordsmith and we try not to be your third or fourth or fifth or 10th grade uh, English teacher either. Um, and no consent, uh, if you had 10 people reviewing it, you'd have 10 different versions. Uh, and we try not to be over an overburden uh, to the investigators, uh, but we try to fulfill our mission of making sure that there's language that people can understand. Uh, for side effects. So, you know, rather than saying medical terms, we say lay terms. Uh, and so, but we also not undermine the relationship that the subject has with the investigator. You know, it's the primary investigator's responsibility uh, to make sure uh, that the subject understands everything. So, uh, it's not to be an end-all document, even though it's morphed into 35 pages in a lot of studies. Uh, there are efforts continuing to try to simplify the documents by not having so much into it and relying on the investigator a little bit more without cutting too many corners. And, and that's really difficult. Uh, but it's always the uh, responsibility of the investigator to see if the the subject has any questions after they've looked through the informed consent. So they look through it, they can even take it home and read it. They get a copy to take home with them. It'll contain uh, what the procedure is of the study, what visits they have, uh, the side effects, what are the alternatives? You know, it's up to the investigator also to tell them. Sometimes they can get this drug by not being in this study. 
or there's other studies that they might get into. And so they tell them, we tell them that that is a required part of the informed consent. And we make sure it's there as well as a phone number uh, that can be answered 24 uh, seven if something happens or if they need to get a hold of the investigator. Uh, so that's why it's, it's so long. And that's why we send back edits to the primary investigator when we look at an informed consent. And what uh, has happened with that is because some of this has felt to be too much wordsmithing and too much super editing uh, for cancer studies now, uh, there is a central IRB and it's not up to each individual area. Uh, there's a central IRB that goes through the informed consent and each of the sites uh, accepts that one consent. And so that's what has happened over just the past five years uh, that makes it a little maybe more simplified, but takes away the local flavor of the IRB in the region itself. Uh, so there is a happy medium and we've lost a little bit uh, and gained a little bit by having these central IRBs. Let me change the subject here just a minute. Uh, it seems as though there, in the last uh, year or two, there's been more political influence in institutions like the CDC, the NIH, and uh, also the uh, other institutions that control drugs. Uh, how significant do you think this is? And uh, have you had any political influence uh, at U of L? Uh, you know, telling people that they can't go to work and shutting things down has been a tremendous uh, problem uh, with trying to keep people safe uh, as well as not harming them. And the that has become very political and has been really bad uh, in, in some of the effects that it's had. In some places, it's been ruled unconstitutional. Uh, what right do we have to tell people everything to do? Uh, so, but no one has approached, no, no one has experienced a virus like this one. And so to put, place blame, uh, on anyone uh, about how they did or did not do this uh, is pretty difficult in my mind because we're writing it as we go and sometimes we're wrong and sometimes we're right and there was for all the people that got up on tv and were was saying this and this and this and this they didn't know they were saying what in his in the past history has been the best way to deal with it. And there's been nuances about this virus versus those that's not there. Now, you, know, you asked me about University of Louisville, uh, we've had no political pressure. In fact, we are separate uh, from uh, even, in a sense, the university itself. Uh, if we disapprove something, uh, a study or that type of thing, they really can't come to us and say approve it. Uh, we're 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 separate, uh, but we're also apart, and that's uh, a good way to be, I think. And we've not had experienced any political pressures in that. Speaking of University of Louisville, I just learned uh, a year or two ago that U of L is an R one university, which means they're one of the top uh, research universities in the country. Could you just briefly uh, tell us about some of the great research projects we've had at UofL, particularly the Brown Cancer Center, and uh, how that's affecting uh, UofL and uh, the state of Kentucky and the, and the whole country? Well, one that comes to mind, there's all kinds of things that, that they've done that they are not publicizing, I think, as well as they should, uh, that uh, of some of the accomplishments that they have. I'm probably not the best person uh, 
to, to, to do that. But uh, strides they've made in, in different types of treatment of melanoma, uh, pancreatic cancer, uh, the, uh, the groundbreaking uh, studies that are happening in spinal cord injury, uh, trying to do and find out what they can for people to walk. Uh, just this past week on TV, uh, there's been a, a researcher on uh, developing a new way to uh, inject a drug. Uh, we're doing a lot of T-cell work, uh, which we're going into the, the not the treatment kind of cancer treatments with drugs, but now getting your body to stimulate to fight the cancer itself. And that's the, the, the way that a lot of research is going now. And we've got many studies uh, that are involving that, uh, where, where we're in developing T-cells and injecting T-cells. And these are your helper cells uh, that will then fight the cancer itself. And we've been uh, on the forefront of getting some of these newer drugs uh, like Keytruda, and the like uh, that has been revolutionary in uh, stopping solid tumors uh, that uh, has not happened before. So there's a whole lot going on here that's not known uh, that uh, probably U of L could do a much better job of, uh, of publicizing that. Uh, but it's really exciting and it's a, it's a very good cancer center to go to. Uh, Laura, this morning I was uh, brushing my teeth <clears throat> and I learned uh, that in Britain uh, they had approved an emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine. And uh, so the emergency use authorization is a, is a term that's been floating around that I think a lot of folks don't understand. Uh, my short time on the IRB, I've I've seen that come through for the odd drug in a special circumstance where a patient maybe didn't, you know, was in kind of the last grasp of the, uh, the, the brass ring or uh, somebody in cardiac failure would become a, uh, 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 might get a device that would, might or might not be helpful. So could you uh, kind of describe the, the, uh, the, emergency youth authorization process, how it works, what sort of situations aside from uh, this vaccine uh, where it might apply? Sure, uh, the emergency use is used uh, if they think they've got enough data uh, that, uh, that it warrants a approval at a quicker timeline uh, than they would normally do. Uh, some of the emergency use is for drugs or devices that they could not go through the whole process uh, because the disease is so rare uh, that they couldn't go through the whole process, but they think it'll, it helps. And so they'll do an emergency use authorization. Say a doctor has a person with a real rare disease there's a drug, but it's not really uh, available, but it's there. And they work with the company and they'll do an emergency use authorization for that. It'll come to the IRB. There is still an informed consent. And uh, so it'll come to the IRB and we'll approve uh, the use of this drug in this person, uh, given the right amount of information uh, within 24 hours. Uh, so that's one of the things with these uh, with these vaccines. It's kind of like an emergency use, uh, but it's not a difficult one. Like uh, for so for for the Pfizer vaccine, uh, they've got enough data, and I think uh, I think it was they had like 160 something cases uh, of COVID that occurred in their placebo arm, the, the in the people that did not get the real vaccine. Uh, compared with only eight uh, in the other arm. Uh, and there were no serious safety concerns. So that's a, a huge difference. And so that in itself is enough um, to warrant 
almost an emergency use because they had had, oh, I, I forget how many the total number was at that point. But that difference was so large uh, that that's one reason that they would uh, grant an EUA for that. So if, if you've got a situation where you have uh, uh, a request for emergency youth use authorization within 24 hours, the IRB only meets, uh, what, two, maybe three times a month. So who gets, who makes that choice or that decision to approve that uh, um, authorization in, in a situation like that? Well, we have me as the chair and we have five vice chairs. So there's someone always available uh, to be able to do that every day. Now, we don't approve the, you know, we're approving things that the FDA has already approved for I understand. So the the, the entire I, the, the the whole board doesn't necessarily have to approve an emergency use authorization. That can be done by one of the chair or one of the vice chairs, depending upon the set of circumstances or the urgency of making that decision. Correct. And then we'll present it to the board uh, at the next meeting. Yeah. Okay. Um. We're going to have several other vaccines coming up next year. Will the IRB be involved in uh, which vaccine is, uh, which patients get which vaccine? Or is that going to be made at the federal level? How will we make that decision? Well, I think the CDC just met, and I think the CDC is, making the decision about how the COVID vaccines are going to be administered as to, as to who gets them first. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I think they just came out uh, yesterday uh, as was publicized that it would be healthcare workers first. Uh, and they, when they talk about healthcare workers, they don't just mean doctors. Uh, they are going all the way through uh, from doctors to nurses to ward clerks to uh, pharmacy to uh, laboratory and, and even the custodial people because it takes all those people uh, to run this hospital. And without them, uh, especially uh, the custodial people, uh, we couldn't run it. Uh, there's so much that you have to dispose of properly, and we're using so much protective equipment and all that. So they are saying that it's everyone in hospitals uh, will as is deemed a healthcare worker. And then they said they would go to the uh, long-term care facility. And then the third tier would be those uh, that are I don't I didn't catch the age whether it was. 65 and older or maybe 70 and older uh, would be the next group. So they're taking the people most at risk. And I'm sure in there, they're going to, at some point, uh, say people with immune dysfunctions are going to be in that high risk group along with the um, age, upper age group. Laura, so um, before I ask you the next question, uh, Mark is waving his hand at me. We've got about five minutes left. So we're getting toward the end of the lollipop. One of the things I've noticed on my relatively short time in the IRB is that over the years, um, it, it seems to me, uh, and I, this may be not, not correct, that's why I'm asking the question, that uh, the number of protocols that are submitted by independent study groups like the children's oncology group or the Southwest oncology group or the radiation therapy oncology group seem to be less and there seem to be more uh, protocols submitted by uh, industry sponsors. Uh, and I guess my question is, is, is that your been your observation from having been on the board longer and, and reviewing these uh, these things in a, in a more detailed way than I have as a, as a board member. 
I, I think that's accurate, Mike. Uh, if you're asking me why I think this is, I think it's probably because of the cost uh, that it takes to do research. There would be more people at uh, all universities doing research uh, if they had the time and if they had the structure. You need research coordinators. You're treating patients as well as trying to do research in, in clinical research, in the clinical research arena. Uh, so there's researchers that, that, what we say, do bench research, and those are, are, are one entity. The entity that we're talking about today are clinical research people. These are people that are still practicing medicine, almost all of them, uh, as well as uh, doing studies. So a lot of our oncologists, uh, a lot of their treatment is various studies that they're participating in and following this protocol. Uh, that's very expensive, and it's also very time-consuming. It's uh, and it it takes you away uh, from other aspects where you would be generating revenue. And so I think with the increasing cost of healthcare in general. There's also increasing cost of research, and there's more pressure uh, that you just don't have the luxury of time and monies uh, to do research like it was uh, before we escalated health costs so much. Well, I also think there's been a decrease in the funding on a federal level because there used to be a lot more uh, opportunity to get funding to do various research projects 10 years ago than there are today. Yes, you're right. Is that because the federal government's not uh, funding the NIH like they used to? Well, the NIH is a super entity and uh, they have done tremendous work and made tremendous strides for health they could stand more funding, but they also have a hierarchy in and of themselves. And it's very difficult to break into the ceiling of the NIH. And I think uh, there's a double-edged sword there. Yes, they need more money, but they don't need to be the only entity. I know so many researchers that say, well, there's no way I can get funding uh, from the NIH uh, because I haven't gotten my class five grants, so to speak, or whatever, and and they tend to uh, kind of fund the same people, and uh, there's there needs to be more, I think, in my mind, than just the NIH. Uh, Laura, uh, we're into the last minute here. I want to thank you. We want to thank you for your willingness to spend the time with us. Uh, this has been a really good discussion. And uh, uh, the timing of it couldn't have been better with all of the business going on with the the, uh, uh, the pandemic and, and, and the vaccines and, and the other things that are going on. So thanks again. We really appreciate it. Thank, well, thank you. you for having me. This has been very informative. Okay, Dr. Clark, again, uh, thanks so much. Uh, Kentuckians for single-payer health care is still meeting virtually. You can reach out to Kay Tillo, our chairperson, to request an invitation to those Zoom meetings. Kay's email address is nursenpo at aol.com. That's nurse npo at aol.com for more information about the group you can go to kyhealthcare.org kyhealthcare.org you can follow the group on facebook uh, dr shavley uh, shares with us that we now have a twitter account and um I just really appreciate uh, getting through another episode without the hair dye uh, <laughs> running down on the equipment here in the Hayburn building. Uh, and would also encourage uh, folks to go to forwardradio.org 
forwardradio.org to learn more about this volunteer-driven radio station and uh, to participate or to contribute to keeping this program going. So thanks again, guys. You're Thank welcome. You. Are we done?